the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, Ph.D. In an uncertain economy, if you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to KirkElliottPhD.com and make an appointment today. Debbie D'Souza here, filling in for Dinesh, and in this special episode, I'll explore Islamic Jihad, specifically describing Hezbollah in Latin America and the West, and warning about Iran's endgame, not just destroying Israel, but also the United States of America. My guest is national security expert Joseph Humeyer, who specializes in the analysis of trans-regional threat networks in the Western Hemisphere. If you're watching on Rumble or YouTube or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to Dinesh's channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Hi, everyone. Well, as I said, I'm filling in for Dinesh. Uh, uh, he's been he's been a little busy this week. Uh, we, were, we just came back from D.C. We did a, a D.C. screening of police state. For those of you that haven't seen Police State, just go to our website, the Police State website, and that's policestatefilm.net. Um, you will get, you know, all kinds of information. You can order the DVD. You can do the streaming, all of that. Um, so just, you know, go to that website. Um, and, you know, Dinesh, is, as, as you know, Dinesh does a lot of media to promote Police State. And so his voice is just a little bit not weak because he's doing interviews today. But I was like, hey, honey, why don't I just fill in for you? Can you believe this? It's been, what, three years now I produced the podcast and I have never done a single episode for Dinesh. Uh, we come on the podcast together like, I, you know, every Friday, but I've never actually done it alone. So this is this is my first and really excited because I decided to pick a topic that doesn't get covered enough in the mainstream media um, I mean, you're hearing a lot about about Hamas and Israel and, and all of that. But what you don't hear a whole lot about is the infiltration of Hezbollah in our hemis in our Western Hemisphere, specifically Latin America, Central America and Mexico. So I, I wanted to touch on that because we are very focused right now on on the horrific Things that have happened in Israel. And, and I actually belong to an Israel real time WhatsApp group where I get on the ground coverage kind of hour by hour. And, uh, and as, as well as photos and videos of atrocities that are, ha that happened on October 7th via a telegram group, uh, group that I was invited to, to join. So, um, Dinesh doesn't see a lot of this. I kind of can't give him the, you know, the play by play. And I have just been horrified. And so, so to me, um, this, this topic is, is so timely, not just because I'm, I'm going to talk about Hezbollah, you know, the proc, the Iran proxy that is destroying, uh, trying to destroy the, the hemisphere as we know it. But, uh, but I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a, of an account of what I've been listening to and hearing. Um, and there's a story. That I want to talk about, uh, Gali Idan. Uh, she's this woman that has, you know, had a, has a family uh, in one of the kibbutz. Um, her daughter had just celebrated her 18th birthday about four days prior to October 7th. And they were just, you know, going to have breakfast, you know, just a normal family, family breakfast with her husband, her son, and her two daughters. Her, her, 18-year-old daughter that had just turned 18, right? 
when they hear all this commotion and and the terrorists come knocking inside they come inside they they hide in their in their safe room a lot of people have those safe rooms for bomb you know as a bomb shelter or whatnot and they were trying to open the door and because the door was locked and they didn't come to the door they shot through the door and they killed her 18-year-old daughter in front of her children her husband um it was it was horrific and and you know what's even more like horrific is that one of the terrorists that finally made his way in said oh don't worry she's with allah can you believe that the nerve um so so this woman is just you know she's broken her husband was broken and he was taken hostage by hamas to gaza so she doesn't know what's become of him she doesn't know where he is whether he's okay nothing she's gone on media in fact i saw an interview with her on cnn believe it or not they do they are covering it pretty well and um and it's it's really just horrific and so so many of the photos and videos that i've seen it's just you know it's it's so sad i i see them at night and then i and then i have nightmares and then i wonder why but but it's really important to be plugged in i love israel dinesh and i went to israel in december last december and and we were we were just we fell in love with israel so my heart aches for for israel and for the jews um i think this is a really really horrible thing that's happened um and and the the campuses you know that are that are having all these anti-semitic rallies and it's just horrible but that's why i felt it was an urgent matter that we talk about hezbollah in our hemisphere because because it's not far-fetched guys uh, to say that these jihadist terrorists are cut from the same cloth and that these atrocities that took place in israel could also happen along our own border so i'm going to bring on a special guest for the rest of the podcast to talk about this to talk about hezbollah iran the end game so stay tuned it's going to be a really good show After menopause, I gained over 20 pounds, and I struggled to lose it. But thankfully, PhD weight loss came to the rescue. I've lost 24 pounds, and Dinesh has lost 27, and we're both now on maintenance and loving it. The program is based on science and nutrition. No injections, no pills, no hours in the gym, no severe calorie restriction, just good, sound, scientifically proven nutrition. It's so simple. They make it easy by providing 80% of your food at no additional cost. And they tell you when and what to eat. And guess what? You can do this without ever being hungry. I'm living proof. I'm always hungry, but I wasn't during the program. The founder, Dr. Ashley Lucas, has her PhD in chronic disease and sport nutrition. She's a registered dietitian and she helps people lose weight and most importantly, maintain that weight loss for life. So if you're ready to take the step of losing weight like Dinesh and I have, call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition at 864-644-1900 or find them online at myphdweightloss.com. That number again is 864-644-1900. I would like to welcome to the podcast, Joseph Humeyer. He is the Director of the Center for a Secure Free Society and Visiting Fellow of the Heritage Foundation. He's a foreign policy and national security expert who analyzes transregional threat networks. Um, his social media, you can follow him at X at J.M. Humeyer and then Instagram at J.M. Humeyer. Uh, the website is www.securefreedomsociety.org. Secure Free securefreesociety.org. I hope I didn't get that wrong. We will have it on the bottom of the bottom of your screen. Joseph, thank you for making the time to be on the podcast today. Your expertise is really appreciated to try to make sense of all this terrorism, not just in the Middle East, but right here in our own backyard. Well, first of all, thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be on uh, the podcast. Uh, my best to Dinesh as well. 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is something I think that many people, when they think of things that happen in the Middle East, whether it's Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, terrorism, the current conflict in Gaza, they think that that's isolated to that part of the world. And it's really not. If you study the history of the Iranian Revolution, even the history of Hezbollah, they truly view themselves as a global presence, as a global actor. Uh, Hezbollah, for instance, when you look at their flag, it doesn't just have a map of Lebanon on their flag. It has a map of the world. And why does it have a map of the world? Because Hezbollah, from the very beginning, from 1982, viewed themselves as a, a global actor that was going to penetrate Lebanese communities worldwide. Uh, so that hits us very close to home, not just within the continental United States. We have Hezbollah in the United States. There's been plenty of cases uh, that Department of Justice, the, the, the FBI, the DEA, and all the law enforcement authorities have dismantled, have busted about Hezbollah operators in the United States. One very particular one, Ali Karani, the, the Ali Karani case that got, uh, this guy got convicted and, um, and sentenced, I think, to 20 some years in prison for basically preparing terrorist actions out of New York. Uh, so this is a very recent case. This doesn't even go, to go all the way back to 9-11. Uh, but in, in essence, I think they're also very present south of the U.S. southern border in Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, imagine we're going to get into that a bit more. But uh, this is something that got very little attention 10 years ago. It's got increasingly more attention. Uh, but I think as me and you will probably agree, uh, not enough attention uh, uh, by U.S. authorities and, and just by the general public at large. Yes, um, good. Um, so so let me ask you, um, why is it then that um, that they that they see, you know, for example, the history, the history in, in Latin America, where they've been in Latin America? Why is it that um, that they pick like places like Venezuela or or Bolivia or Argentina? Why can't they just come straight to, like, say, Mexico and, and ignore all that region? Well, I think two two reasons. One, uh, they did they did go to Mexico, so they're, they're in Mexico. So but, they are but okay. They are in Mexico, but beyond that, I think to your question, which is they they have a very robust presence in the south of South America. There's this kind of infamous, unfortunately, area called the tri border area, which is the intersection of Brazil, Paraguay, and Argentina. This is a, a border area, and there's large Lebanese communities in these places. Now, just like Lebanon, right? We're not condemning the Lebanese people. The Lebanese people are victims of Hezbollah's uh, uh, extortion and Hezbollah's bullying, uh, which is basically like a mafia. So what happens in Lebanon doesn't stay in Lebanon. It actually extends to all the Lebanese communities worldwide. And in South America in particular, some very large ones in Brazil and Argentina and in Paraguay. So they 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 staked their hub initially back then uh, and carried out. I mean, this is something that people don't really, I think, understand the magnitude. Carry out the largest Islamist terrorist attack in the history of the Western Hemisphere prior to 9-11. I said before 9-11, the, the, the largest Islamist terrorist attack happened in Argentina and it happened twice. Happened in 1992 and in 1994, where Hezbollah first bombed the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires in 1992, and then uh, bombed the Jewish cultural center called the Amia in 1994, collectively killing 114 people. But if you take us back to that time period, uh, no one in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, believed that Hezbollah could do something like that overseas. They had carried out bombings in Lebanon, the, the Beirut bombings, the infamous ones in the 80s. They've carried out some bombings in the near abroad. But no one, no analyst, no intelligence uh, professional thought that Hezbollah had that level of capability in Latin America on the other side of the world. And I say that because I feel like we're in a similar situation today where people really underestimate how far Hezbollah can carry out its terrorist activities, even though they already did so in in the 1990s. So Hezbollah uh, staked themselves in the south of South America. But there's a point of inflection, Debbie, and I imagine we're going to get more into this, which was with the rise of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela because he uh, provided Hezbollah something that previously they didn't have, which was state cover and state support. Much like Iran does for them in the Middle East and around the world, Venezuela became like a second Iran for Hezbollah, providing them all the logistics and the concealment and the cover uh, support so that they can conceal their illicit activities in Latin America. Wow, this is really interesting. I want to, in the next segment, I want to get into how they use their uh, cultural propaganda to secure the region. Um, but we'll be right back with more. Dinesh and I are on a great health journey, but we still struggle to eat enough fruits, veggies, and fiber. Lucky for us, we discovered Balance of Nature. And what a better way to get all your fruits and veggies plus fiber than with Balance of Nature. 
balance of nature, fruits and veggies are made from fresh whole produce right here. Their produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cooled process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrition content. And the balance of nature, fiber and spice is a proprietary blend of fiber and 12 spices for overall and digestive health. So like Dinesh and I have, start your journey to better health right now. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com to get your 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, that's balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751 and get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Hi, we're back with Joseph Humeyer, Director, Center for a Secure Free Society. Uh, Joseph, um, thank you for being here again. And uh, let's uh, let's get into the the cultural propaganda that Iran uses to secure the region, and and then we can just move from there. Yeah, so this is important, uh, Debbie, because you know Iran basically has used a kind of a soft penetration approach to coming into Latin America. And it begins with changing their message. Uh, you know, in the Middle East, they use a lot of the Islamic propaganda. They use political Islam as a way to kind of penetrate, even in places where uh, Shias are a minority or, or, or even in the Arab world. And I think Hezbollah is very important for their presence in the Arab world, being that Iran is Persian. Uh, but in Latin America, they, they, they do that, some of that. They don't get away from that. Their essence is as an Islamic revolution. But they also accentuate other aspects of the Iranian revolution. I'll give you an example. Uh, when they come to Latin America, Iran tends to project themselves or portray themselves as a social movement that was lifted up to protect its natural resources, referring to British Petroleum in 1979. And when you sell it that way in Latin America, you get a lot of listeners. So if you talk about social movements and natural resources, well, all the pretty much Marxist and socialist and communist movements in Latin America say, well, that's what our cause is. That's what we've been doing. So it kind of get, it doesn't come into the in, initial entry point, uh, talking about the 12th Imam and Mag Magdi and all the religious aspects that comes later, but that's the, essentially their selling point. Uh, you know, Iran has uh, 11 embassies in Latin America and each one of these embassies functions like mostly like an intelligence center. And, and what they do is they propagate uh, Shia Islamic cultural centers uh, a former prosecutor of the AMIA terrorist bombing in Argentina, uh, Alberto Nisman, he had once called them uh, essentially uh, antennas uh, of the Iranian revolution, meaning that they were served, these Islamic cultural centers were serving as uh, intelligence centers to do collection, recruitment, to basically do the studies, country studies of all the countries in which they were located. Today, I would call them cell towers because they've evolved way beyond just being like an antenna, an intelligence operation, but mostly involved in disinformation. I'll give you one very clear example. One of the biggest disinformation campaigns that Iran has in the world, and particularly in Spanish and Portuguese and Latin America, is to paint uh, the now uh, deceased uh, Quds Force Commander Qasim Soleimani as kind of a later day Che Guevara, as, as kind of a hero that was fighting against uh, terrorism and fighting for justice. And I was in uh, Colombia not too long ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was in Colombia not too long ago, and I was in a public university, which is c kind of like a Marxist stronghold. This is where they do a lot of the Marxist indoctrination to some of the people for, for the FARC and the ELN and some of those terrorist groups in Colombia. And in that university, they had a big mural of Qasim Soleimani, uh, where they were projecting him with the beret, with the bonnet of Che Guevara. Oh. So this is the level of propaganda that they're doing. Wow. And most Latin Americans don't know anything about Qasim Soleimani. I mean, he was, before he was killed in, 2020, they didn't probably never even heard of his name. Wow, that is that. So they fool a lot of people into into thinking that that this guy was like a hero, and in fact, um, couldn't be any anything further from the truth, right? Um, they call him a social justice warrior. Yeah, social justice. Money. That sounds very familiar, actually. Um, so, um, so they fool the Christians in, in into thinking that that they're not they worship the same God and all those things that they that they do very well. Um, and uh, so, so that is that is something that is extremely troubling, given the fact that um, that. That they do this with such ease, and and they don't seem to. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like 
they're they're really very cunning and very smart people. I mean, we we think of them as barbaric, right? Because of all the the atrocities that they've done, uh, whether it be bombings or beheadings or whatever. But they're very clever individuals, and uh, and it's very you know. So yes, no, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good that's a great point, and I think it's really good important to make because you know when when I talk to our, our friends in Latin America to help them understand the sophistication in which Iran operates because they're very they're, they're very cunning they have strategy they you know they have vulnerabilities i mean they're not conventionally strong economically or militarily but because they don't have that conventional strength they've dominated the arts of asymmetric war and so what i do with a lot of our latin american friends is i, I say think of this you know uh shia islam is about 15% of the muslim world right they're a minority in the muslim community uh persians are very culturally and and uh, uh ethnically different than Arabs, and anyone that's been in the Middle East knows that uh, right. uh, firsthand. Right. And how? So, how does the minority yeah. of the Muslim world, which you know, Shias, the uh, Iran, um, and uh, Persian, being able to dominate Sunni majority Arab countries, right? Like that. How does that happen? Is because they they master that art of penetration, of strategic penetration, using strategic influence. Part of that is cultural influence. Uh, I think that's why Hezbollah was so important to them. So just taking that modus operandi, those tactics, and applying them to Latin America was not that hard for them. They understood how to do this, and they've done a very good job at reading essentially the, the what I call the kind of like the grassroots activists, indigenous groups, youth groups, and co-opting them and bringing them more towards the side of Iran. Uh, and and this is something I think that many people in Latin America have missed. I mean, I can name you uh, many. Uh, groups in Latin America that on the face don't seem to have anything to do with the Middle East or Iran, uh, but are either financed, trained, or supported by the Iranian Revolution. The Enocasarizas in Peru, the Quebrachos in Argentina, the Colectivos in Venezuela, the Cocaleros in Bolivia. These are groups that most people listen to, like, who are they? Well, they're local actors that people in those countries know about, but if you do the investigations, you find out that they have tentacles that go all the way back to the Islamic Republic. That is so interesting. Uh, we will be right back with more. We all know that aches and pains come with getting older. I hate it. But it doesn't mean you have to accept it. That's why I want to tell you about Leah from Ohio and her Relief Factor story. One Sunday, Leah was sitting on her couch in so much pain, she was literally in tears. That's when she decided to try Relief Factor. In just eight days, she found relief, and she continued to get better and better and she was truly amazed at the product. And we know from personal experience that it works because I can now do planks and push-ups, which for many years I just wasn't able to do. I know it absolutely works. If you're tired of living with aches and pains, see how Relief Factor, a daily drug-free supplement, could help you feel and live better every single day. To get started, try the Relief Factor 3-Week Quick Start Kit. It's only $19.95, and it comes with a feel-better or your money-back guarantee. Visit relieffactor.com or call 1-800-4-RELIEF. That's 1-800-4-RELIEF. I'm back with Joseph Humeyer, expert at Latin America and analysis of transregional threats. Uh, in in our networks here in in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Joseph, I want to know why it is the the counterterrorism efforts in Latin America either aren't or don't seem to be a priority for America. Why is that? Well, it, it begins, Debbie, with the fact that they aren't a priority for Latin American countries and governments, right? So, Latin American countries and governments really did not actively participate in a meaningful way during the counterterrorism efforts that were going on worldwide. A lot of them diminished and downplayed the threats in their countries. And one of the reasons that happens is because in most Latin American countries, they don't even think of Hezbollah or Hamas, for that matter, as terrorist organizations. There's no official designation for them as a terrorist. There was actually a very good effort, specifically on this point, that happened during the Trump administration. Uh, and the Trump administration was uh, actively working with our Latin American partners in the region to hold these major hemispheric counterterrorism conferences with the effort of having countries designate Hezbollah and Hamas as terrorist organizations. They successfully did that in five countries. Argentina was the first. On the 25th anniversary of the Amia bombing, Argentina was the first country in the history of Latin America under a different president, under President Mauricio Macri, 
to officially designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. They also created a, a public registry, which is kind of like a, like a sanctions list of Hezbollah in their country. Colombia, Paraguay, Honduras, Guatemala all followed in suit. But that effort died during the Biden administration. And the Biden administration, that no longer became a priority. Uh, they pretty much uh, pushed that effort out the window. And it's more needed than ever. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick anecdote on this. Brazil, there was a lot of efforts. And I was very optimistic that uh, after we were done with uh, these other designations, that Brazil might have been the next country to designate. And that's a big deal because Brazil is a big country. And we had a very favorable government under President Bolsonaro. They had actually said and expressed interest in doing this. Um, Brazil ended up not being able to do it for a lot of obstacles that were happening in their country. Uh, but nonetheless, just a few weeks ago, what happened in uh, Brazil, Hezbollah operators and, and, and supporters were arrested for potentially planning a terrorist attack. A lot of people in Brazil that were trying to challenge this designation said, well, we don't have this problem in this country where there's no reason to be able to do this and attract us to be a target. Well, they're a target regardless because uh, that's how Hezbollah operates. And one last point, uh, Debbie, on this, you know, why this is so important, why these designations, and I was very emphatic about making this a priority for Latin America, was because it helps synchronize our communication. I'll give you an example. Uh, the State Department has this thing called the Annual Country Reports on Terrorism, where they report on all the terrorist activities worldwide. Well, if they call their counterpart in, let's say, Peru, for example, right, and they ask this question, are there any Islamist terrorist cells operating in your country? The Peru would respond by saying, no, they're not. And then they'll say, well, you know what? The State Department will say, you know what? I'm not sure. I've heard Joseph talk about this. Let me let me call back. Let me let me make make sure I'm 100% on this. And they'll call back their counterpart in Peru. They say, you know, let me be very specific. Does Hezbollah operate in your country? Then Peru will say, oh, yes, Hezbollah is here. But why? Because Hezbollah, does, Peru does not consider Hezbollah a terrorist group. And that's the kind of uh, mistakes and lack of communication and synchronization that we don't have with many other countries. So that's why it doesn't get the level of attention it needs to get. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, I, I mean, what from what I hear, Hezbollah was actually responsible for teaching Hamas what to what to do going into infiltrating Israel. So these guys are, I mean, horrific. They they are they're monsters, and and well, for you know. So go ahead. No, the, I, I was going to say just what you're saying. That I think they're master uh, deceivers. Yes, uh, they're, they're very good at deception, and and they've taught Hamas and other groups how to do that. Yes. Uh, well, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more uh, about this uh, this vacuum, I guess that that has happened in the region. And uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Mike Lindell just keeps on introducing great deals. I tell you, he's featuring the all new My Towels. Save fifty percent on the six piece towel set. Regular price fifty nine ninety six, but now for a limited time, only twenty nine ninety eight with promo code Dinesh. Dinesh and I have. Mike's pillows all over our house, and we just love them. I just can't seem to order enough of them uh, for for ourselves. But guess what? We're going to give them away as Christmas presents. So just be be aware of that. My towel six piece set includes two bath towels, two hand towels, two washcloths. These towels are simply amazing. The long, stable length of the shipper cotton fibers make them really soft because of the long fibers. They can wrap around each other more easily, creating a smoother and softer fabric, soft to the touch without that lotiony feel and really, really absorbent. So take advantage of the 50% off the six-piece towel set. To, to do that, to take advantage of that, you need to just call 1-800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com. Again, that number, one 800 876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com and don't forget to use promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. want to welcome back Joseph Humeyer, Director of Center for a Secure Free Society. And um, Joseph, I want to say this is probably going to be my, not. I don't want to say favorite segment because I think everything that you've talked about is is extremely important. But the reason that I feel like this is, this is extremely important, especially in my heart, is I am Venezuelan. I was born in Venezuela. I still have family in Venezuela. So I have a lot of interest in what happened in that, what happens in that country. And of course, you know, the, the, um, the, the, 
the interest has always been how did Venezuela become a socialist country and all those things. And we could talk about that later. But um, but I really want to talk about the infiltration of Iran, specifically in Venezuela and the connection that they have. It's almost like a sisterhood, right? Uh, it's almost like Iran and then little Iran and Venezuela is little Iran. Um, and, and, and how they actually played a role in the socialized socialization of Venezuela with Hugo Chavez as a big player in this. But, but I want you to kind of walk us through, explain everything, why Venezuela, uh, what it means for us. Um, you know, the, are there nuclear weapons in Venezuela yet from Iran? All those things, um, in this segment. So, uh, so go ahead. You have the floor. Yeah. So I, you know, I mentioned this, I alluded to this earlier that I think Venezuela has other characteristics that kind of go above and beyond these other countries in Latin America when it comes to Iran and Hezbollah. You know, Venezuela has become much what Cuba was to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, kind of its principal proxy in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I refer to it as a platform because it's become weaponized. Venezuela's become weaponized to have many methods to attack the United States, whether it's migrants, drugs, terrorists, or even weaponry, uh, drones, missiles, uh, and potentially even some nuclear activities. And we'll get, get into that. But the main reason that Venezuela was targeted in this way was two. One, because of Hugo Chavez. Obviously, Hugo Chavez became pretty much, you know, he was like essentially a, a game changer in Latin America to taking a region that would have had a lot of prosperity and opportunity to taking it a hundred percent towards conflict, corruption, and basically the destruction of their institutions and society. Hugo Chavez was that. Uh, not just for Venezuela, he, he wasn't for the entire region because his tentacles of his illicit oil money basically got into all the uh, elections in Latin America. That's the first factor. The second factor is, and I talked about this, you know, Hezbollah penetrates Lebanese communities. Uh, there's a very large Lebanese community and Syrian community in Venezuela. You know very well, Debbie, being uh, from there and having family there. And, uh, you know, if there is a community in Latin America of Lebanese expatriates, that are most captured by Hezbollah, it's the Venezuelan one. Uh, when you have people with the name of Tarek el-Aysami being one of the most important people in your government, you know that that community has been captured uh, by Iran and Hezbollah. So what have they done with this? And I'm going to use it as a statistic uh, to kind of like uh, give you the sense of the magnitude of this. Um, today, uh, there are more Venezuelans in Syria than there are in Brazil. Right. There's about 270, 280,000 Venezuelans in Brazil, which is right next to Venezuela and upwards of 350,000 Venezuelans in Syria. Why is that? There's a certain part of Syria that's called the little Venezuela, uh, Asawaida. It's where they speak Spanish, Irarepas and Arabic. Oh. And it's a stronghold for Hezbollah and Russia and Iran that were defending the, the dictator, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So the same reason that Syria is so important to Iran to have that kind of uh, land bridge from the Levant and Lebanon through into Iran is the same reason Venezuela is so important because it's the air bridge to get all their activities into the Western Hemisphere to attack the United States. Logistics. So the reason you have these two big communities is because Iran, Hezbollah have built a logistical network from Syria to Venezuela to basically destabilize the world. And so that's the real big uh, so what on, on Venezuela. On Venezuela. Tell me a little bit about this Tarek El Alsami. Uh, who is he and where is he now? So he's probably the most important man in Venezuela. You know, everyone focuses on Nicolas Maduro because he's the face of the regime. He's the president of the country. But really under Maduro, there's very important people and probably nobody know him more important than Tarek El Alsami because he's been the minister of proud about just every important ministry in the economy and this national security of Venezuela. He was the minister of interior. He was the minister of petroleum. He was the minister of mining, the minister of national industry. Uh, he was the vice president of the, of the country. Uh, he was also a governor of a very important state called Aragua. But the most important thing that I think Tarek Al-Assami did, among a bunch of things, was when he was starting his career, this is back in 2007-8 under Chavez, he was the minister of interior, and he created an immigration scheme to basically document uh, members of Hezbollah, Hamas, and others to be able to have a, a complete fake identity. Why that's so important for the United States is because the number one source country of migration to the U.S. southern border is Venezuelan. 
But there is no way that we know with, with any kind of certainty that all those are Venezuelans because what Tarek al-Assami did as the Ministry of Interior in charge of their immigration system was giving them not just passports and visas, a full suite of documents, driver's license, uh, bank records, property records, to take someone from Lebanon and to say that he was born in Venezuela when he never even stepped foot in Venezuela and doesn't even speak Spanish. That's the level of support that Tarek al-Assami provided. And that's creating a conundrum for immigration because we don't know all the Venezuelans that are in the United States, if they're actually truly Venezuelans. Oh, my goodness. So the so you're saying that the 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 million plus people that have come through the border from Venezuela, some of them could be Hezbollah. I know for a fact that there's some that are uh, uh. We're documenting some of these cases and, and we're looking at them. And there's one case in particular that I'll be able to talk to you about. They'll be in very short order. Uh, but it's not public yet, but we'll, we'll talk about it soon. And, and what, what, what I'm saying is, and it's not a big percentage, right? So there's, you know, 7.7 million Venezuelans that have fled that country since 2014, the largest mass migration in the history of the Western Hemisphere and the largest currently in the world, larger than Syria, larger than Ukraine. Um, but what I'm saying is it doesn't take that many. It can literally be less than 1% of that that's tied to this illicit security scheme that Tarek al-Assami uh, erected in Venezuela. And that we're talking about in the thousands, like in the thousands uh, of people. And, and, you know, when 19 hijackers were able to cause chaos in 9-11 in 2001 in the United States, you can only imagine what a thousand terrorists could do uh, operating throughout uh, our country. So is he still in Venezuela? Because I thought that he he was under indictment. Uh, like in 2019, is is he there? Is he still operating? What is he doing? There's an indictment by the Department of Justice against Tarek al-Assami and, and, and many other leaders of the Venezuelan government, uh, including Nicolas Maduro himself. And, and there's a lot of confusion because he recently resigned as the Minister of Petroleum, and people took that as him losing power. But you know, in Venezuela, the ministers aren't like they are in Switzerland, right? They're not like you know really functional ministers that have his main operations are outside the government. And, and according to our research, he's not, he hasn't changed anything. He's still operating in Venezuela, no longer in the public light as a minister, now in the shadows, but that's probably where he's even more dangerous. Uh, Tarek al-Assami is still active in Venezuela. He's still powerful uh, and he's still uh, involved in a lot of the things that are happening with Iran and Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. Well, um, when we come back, I want to talk about the term pink tide. Uh, because I think it's very, uh, Dinesh didn't even know what that was, actually. So let, let's explore it. Let's talk about it um, when we come back. We are back with Joseph Humeyer, Director, Center for a Secure Free Society. And um, Joseph, in the last segment, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the term pink tide. Uh, Dinesh has never heard of this term. He, does, he didn't know what it was. And uh, I want to know how, how did, who came up with it? Who coined the phrase? Um, what is it? Um, you know, and then once we get into that, then I want to talk a little bit about the candidates that are running in some of the Venezuelan elections that are right wing. Uh, and if they stand a chance, given all of all of this. Yeah. So, yeah, no, um, the term pink tide, I think it was coined by some academic, but it essentially refers to a political shift that was happening in Latin America in the first decade of the 21st century, led by Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro, that basically took Latin America into the orbit of socialism, the, what some call 21st century socialism. Uh, so you started propping up all these socialist, populist, progressive presidents, uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, Daniel Ortega, the resurgence in Nicaragua, Evo Morales in Bolivia, uh, Lula da Silva in Brazil, Cristina Kirchner in Argentina. So that, that created this kind of block and people started seeing this shift. Uh, what happened in like the second decade of the 21st century, essentially between 2010, 2020, was what some call the conservative wave. You can argue whether these presidents were actually conservative, but they were certainly pro-business and pro-the U.S. But, uh, the, the, when the political pendulum shifted back to the right, the problem was those right of center presidents in Latin America, I'm referring to Mauricio Macri in Argentina, Piñera in Chile, Duque in Colombia. The problem was that they didn't have a geopolitical vision while the pink tide did. The pink tide completely aligned their foreign policy with Russia, China, and Iran. The other side tried to continue to do business with China and the United States, continue to buy weapons from Russia and Southcom, did ignore Iran completely. So because of this lack of geopolitical vision, we had basically the crumbling of a lot of the right of center presidents in Latin America. The most recent probably would be Guillermo Lasso in Ecuador. And now we're seeing the resurgence of Marxist presidents in Latin America, uh, President Petro in Colombia, Gabriel Boric in Chile, Xiomara Castro in Honduras, the return of Lula da Silva in Brazil. That's right. And I think all eyes are now on Argentina 
because this is really going to be the inflection point if Javier Malay, a libertarian candidate that, you know, very much tied to the right of center networks in the region, if he can win, he can basically shift this tide to get away from the Marxism that's been uh, taken over Latin America in recent years. Yeah. And he and I saw I saw on social media that he was embracing the Israeli flag. And you mentioned before the break that he's converting to Judaism. Yes, I'm understanding is that he's been studying uh, quite a bit under a rabbi in New York to basically uh, make this conversion uh, and becoming much more spiritual, understanding that, you know, as he kind of elevates himself in the political life of Argentina, the battle goes way beyond just the political battle. It's almost a spiritual battle because the opponents to liberty in Latin America I mean, you, they're, they're, I mean, Hugo Chavez, Maduro, Evo Morales, Christina Kirchner. I mean, these are criminals. Yes, these are people. Evil. In the case of, in the case, they're very evil. In the case of Christina Kirchner, she has criminal indictments and convictions. She was in, convicted of uh, corruption for right. over a billion dollars in public work projects. So Javier Malay knows he's not going up against just your random politician with some leftist ideas. He's going up against some very dark forces. And I think he's trying to build strength. We wish him the best in the elections on this Sunday, and hopefully the Argentines uh, elect right uh, in this election. Yeah, yeah. What do you think his chances are? Do you think they're good? You know, they're they're good. I mean, he's got the popular support. I mean, he's become uh, very, very kind of like an icon in, in, in Argentina. He's got, you know, kind of like uh, some people say he's got like uh, this Trump style yes. uh, in the sort of uh-huh. his mannerisms, but with worse hair because his hair is like, <laughs> oh, nice. yeah, he, he was a former rock, rock, rock and roll singer. Um, <laughs> but I would say this. I have not seen a pres- a leftist Marxist president come to power in Latin America without f- first dividing the right. They exactly. basically the right, have them fight against each other, and then they prop themselves up with a minority support. That's one thing I might be worried about in Argentina because elements of the right in Argentina, because of the populist style of Javier Malay, are saying we don't want Javier Malay. We don't want Massa. We don't want the Kirchnerists, but we don't also want Javier Malay. To me, that's a bad move because yeah. – whether you agree with his style or don't, yeah. you definitely don't want to have this socialist take over your country. Yeah. And Argentina's having a lot of economic problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, Joseph, that is exactly what's happening in America. I mean, really. The the you know, the the Republican Party is dividing, is arguing, bickering, whatever. They're not uniting. Um, when in fact we have to in order to defeat the left, because as you know, they're like a cancer and they stick together and they actually do have some some really good um, ways of, of, of getting those votes, whether it be fraudulent, as we know, or or otherwise, uh, they fool the public. And I think in uh, when you when we look at governments in South America, I always say, you know what, that's exactly like it is here. The Venezuelan right did the exact same thing that they're doing here. They they self uh, exploded. They 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 divided so so badly that they couldn't keep it together, and they essentially gave it to Hugo Chavez on a silver platter. And I yeah, hope that I that's think, yeah. I think over time the United States has been kind of preaching to Latin America to emulate the United States, and what's happened over time because of our dysfunctional <laughs> politics, we ended up looking more like Latin America with a two tier justice system, uh, very irregular elections, and and just all the things that you used to see in Latin America are now seeing. Here in the United States. Yeah. And I think 100% to what you're saying, Debbie, um, in the sense that, you know, we may have differences in uh, the, the conservative movement. Yeah. I would even go bo- broader than the Republican Party in the United States. But those differences are put aside when you have uh, authoritarianism creeping on your doorstep. And the measures that have been taken by the Biden administration are moving the country in that direction. I mean, just what they're doing to President Trump. I mean, exactly. this, I, w- I would never have thought I would see in my lifetime political persecution under uh, political opposition in the United States, the way I've studied it in Latin America, uh, but we're living it today. And what I'm really worried about is the normalization of political violence, because in Latin America, that's already happened. And what you start to see is political assassinations. You start to see uh, political kidnappings and things that are very, very uh, violent and, and just unhealthy. Uh, I'm worried that the United States will move in that direction unless we fix this and fix it fast. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a movie out, Police State. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but I we talk we talk about all that, you know, and and it's it's just um it's it's horrible that we are actually having to do a movie called Police State in America. So uh, when we come back, we will have our final segment with Joseph Humeyer. We are back with Joseph Humeyer. He is the director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. And uh, this is our, our final segment. We're going to talk about 
the end game in Iran, uh, Hezbollah, in the Western Hemisphere. But I also want to talk about how the how Hezbollah and and the Hezbollah training camps and and all of those things that that are happening in Latin America and Central America and Mexico are sort of crossing with the cartels because as we know the cartels are not Islamic but how are they how do they manage to like work with each other yeah so this is what we call in the defense yeah. community uh threat convergence uh, okay. because yes while you're right while, while cartel members okay. aren't becoming Islamic or Islamic uh, terrorist organizations aren't abandoning Islam just to become drug drug traffickers what you're seeing is the fusion of the two and what's called logistical networks, the financiers, the fixers, the facilitators, the, the logistical operatives that are the glue that are bringing these two worlds together. Like a real quick example would be like if you're an accountant for the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico and Hezbollah now comes to Mexico, you're probably a good candidate to be a accountant for Hezbollah in Mexico. That's a, a small example. But, you know, in 2018, uh, attorney then Attorney General Jeff Sessions he uh, listed the top five transnational criminal organizations in the world the top five by the Department of Justice uh, the f- the first three were Mexican drug cartels the ones that you know about uh, Sinaloa Jalisco Nueva Generaciones and the fourth one was the MS13 gang from Salvador which was very brutal back then uh, and the fifth was Hezbollah and that caught a lot of people's attention how is Hezbollah mentioned with Mexican cartels and Salvadorian gangs. Because Hezbollah has become so active in the illicit drug trade that they have become the money launderer preference of choice for all the cartels in Latin America. Uh, one of my colleagues had once called them a uh, Western Union or Federal Express to be able to move money across uh, continents in behalf of the cartels. There is a, uh, a litany of cases in Latin America of what we call Hezbollah supporters basically operating in high levels uh, schemes of money laundering and drug trafficking uh, so that Hezbollah could fund its war efforts uh, in uh, now against Israel, but then against in Syria and in support of Iran. So they're very much involved in the drug business. Uh, do you think also that um, some of the tactics that the cartels have learned, like the beheadings and just the, you know, like, I'm going to hang, I'm going to, I'm going to cut somebody's limbs and I'm going to hang it on the bridge, those types of things. Do you think that those are tactics that they learned from Hezbollah? I, I don't know about those in particular. I mean, the cartels have always been very brutal. I mean, going back to the beginning, they've always been beheading. They've always had very brutal um, measures and tactics. So I don't think the brutality was learned necessarily from Hezbollah. But what has been learned is the logistical network schemes, the ability to move money, the ability to weapons. I think the weapons that they have got. There's a case. I'll, I'll highlight this one case. In 2020, there's a case of a Syrian Venezuelan. Uh, his name is Adel El Zabayer. He was actually a parliamentarian. He was a member of the National Assembly of Venezuela, a legislator who took leave of absence uh, from being in the legislation in Venezuela to go to Syria to fight in the Sy- Syrian civil war on behalf of Bashar al-Assad. That's crazy in itself. But when the DA who was investigating this case, when they uncovered the real reason he went to Syria, they found out it was because he was part of a, a group that was brokering a deal between Hezbollah, Hamas, the Syrian government, the Venezuelan government, Iran, and the Colombian narco-terrorist, the, the FARC particularly, to broker a cocaine for weapons scheme. And in 2014, uh, a bunch of weapons, small arms, uh, rocket-propelled grenades, all these things started arriving from Lebanon and Syria to Venezuela to give to the FARC so that they have these, this, this, uh, small arms capability. So weapons is a big part of this. You know, the cocaine goes to north and to, and, and east, uh, but the weapons come west and, and they've been able to make the cartels, uh, much more powerful than they other, otherwise would be. Wow. What about the tunnels? Because I know that, that in, in yeah. Israel, you know, has, uh, Hamas has done all these tunnels that go into Israel. And and that is also the case with the Mexican border, right? They have tunnels. Do you think that that's another tactic that they've that they've yeah, used? There's, I, I know somebody that that worked on this particularly within U.S. law enforcement, and he was convinced that this was uh, uh, done by Hamas. Uh, particularly, that Hamas had helped uh, specific uh, members of cartels, engineers in particular on how to basically develop not just the tunnel per se, because anyone could develop a tunnel. It was the electrical uh, capability, the electrical power of the tunnel, uh, because that's not something that's easy to do. Uh, and they had these very sophisticated engineers uh, in uh, the Palestinian territories and Lebanon that helped uh, the cartels do this. I didn't investigate this myself, but I have a colleague, uh, a friend that did so out of U.S. law enforcement, and he was convinced that's the case. 
Wow. So, so your personal opinion, Joseph, what, what do you think, uh, are we, are we in trouble? What, what, what can we take from this? I mean, we're in trouble. The world's on fire. I mean, there's uh, small wars erupting all over throughout the world and some of them turning into big wars. But I think really what we're haven't realized yet is we're on the precipice of World War Three. Uh, Iran is a major actor in that world war because they have aligned themselves with Russia and China. So the three together, Russia, Iran, and China, have decided to take the world into a global conflict so that they can change the international order. But the big difference between the previous two world wars in the 20th century is that this time it's going to be fought part of this war, a big part, in Latin America. Latin America was not a major part of the First and the Second World War. They provided some support to the allies in the United States. Uh, but this time they will be because those three actors, Russia, China, and Iran, have been able to capture Latin America and turn it as a weapon against the United States. So that's the big lesson. The United States needs to start paying attention to Latin America because, it, you know, in, in, I'm going to use a sports analogy. In boxing, it's not the hardest punch that knocks you out. It's the punch you don't see. And in the case of the U.S. foreign policy and security, the punch we're not watching is Latin America. Well, thank you for your analysis and your perspective, and God bless you for the work you do. Um, I follow you. I follow it. I think you are amazing, and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, Debbie. It's a pleasure and honor. Thank you so much. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.